Welcome back to OWC Radio. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing writer J. Paul Diratini and post-production executive Steve Bannerman about a movie I recently screened called Foster Boy. It is exec-produced by Shaquille O'Neal and stars Matthew Modine, Louis Gossett Jr., and a talented young actor, Shane Paul McGee. I wanted to bring this film to your attention for several reasons. One, it's hard-hitting and wonderful. Two, OWC's equipment was front and center during post. And three, for those of you who may not be aware, there is a battle going on in Hollywood, but it's most likely not what crosses your mind when I mention it. We call it awards season. This is the time of year when all the creators, large and small, battle for a few spots on that coveted I won an Oscar stage. Millions of dollars are at stake, and millions are spent trying to get to that prized first place. Major studios and VODSVOD services have the money to compete on a huge scale, but some smaller gems, like Foster Boy, are faced with depending on modest budgets and word of mouth. Thankfully, in this digital age, we have the ability to help spread information. I chased after the creators because I firmly believe that this film deals with issues in the foster care system that need to be brought to light. And it is also beautifully written, produced, acted, and post-produced. We will be speaking with Jay and Steve shortly for part one of our two-part interview. In the meantime, listen in. Here's the film's trailer. Stand by. This is going to be interesting. Mr. Randolph, I see you more than to see my grandchildren. Representing yourself is not a good idea. Meet your new lawyer, Michael Trainer. He got hurt. He wants money from the people he thinks are responsible. He'll be lucky to get a dime. Why do I have to have you as my lawyer? Your Honor, this is a known corporation versus a kid that looks like a thug. Thug? When Jamal Randolph was a 10-year-old child, Belcourt ignored his repeated complaints that a 16-year-old that they had placed tortured him for a three-year period. Belcourt upped the offer to $150,000. I already said no. Belcourt took over where the government failed, Mr. Trainer. The jury's not going to believe a black drug dealer. They're my verses, but my past is stupid. No, it's not stupid. Jamal, you write, don't you? Take the offer. I will destroy you and your company. Sometimes when we meet people, we don't see them for who they truly are. I'm sorry that I did not see you, Jamal. It's time for OWC Radio. Tech Talk with Creatives. Conversations with host Serena Catania. Jay, I wanted to ask you, I heard that in the 2000s you were involved in a court case that was very similar to what you were writing about in Foster Boy. Can you tell us what inspired this script and how you first became involved with it? 
Yeah, so I've been a lawyer practicing in foster care abuse and other areas, but primarily foster care abuse for about, I had been about 20 years, but my other passion has always been writing and acting. I was involved in improv, did different things, and I had written a play called Haram Iran, which did pretty well and got a GLAD nomination. Then somebody suggested I go back to school, and I, I went to the University of California, Riverside, and I had a professor, John Schimmel, and I was doing my MFA program, and he I handed in a script and he said, that's okay, but uh, tell me what else you have and what else you can work on. What inflames your passions? What gets you motivated? And I talked to him about my uh, work in foster care and he told me, write it. And I said, okay. And I wrote this first rendition of Foster Boy and I turned it in and he, of course, writing is rewriting and he had me rewrite it. And then he said, you know, this is really good, and let's take this to a producer I know, Peter Samuelson, and let's see if he's interested, and maybe we could take this further. And we did, and I had some more meetings with Peter, and eventually it led to my other producers and Shaquille, and that's how we got going with it. And what I wrote about was a few of my cases. I had about two or three cases in which a child was severely abused in the foster care system, and it bothered me greatly. I mean... We lawyers are supposed to be able to put our emotions to the side, but, you know, that's not entirely true. And I remember a particular case of a young man who had been abused in foster care sexually and physically, and there had been warnings ahead of time that indicated to the for-profit agency that he was susceptible to abuse. And, in fact, they had placed a kid in the home that they knew had abused his own cousin and a half-sister and so forth. And they hid it from me for years. And finally, I was able to find the documentation and prove the case and win. And that profoundly touched me because I I just thought, this is wrong. We have a half a million kids in foster care, and so many of them are subject to physical, sexual, or emotional abuse. And I just think our country could do so much better. And so when I wrote that, it was sort of a perfect, I guess you'd say, serendipity of bringing my legal career together with my passion for writing. And that's where we're at today. Well, you did a great job. When did you finish the script? The question begs the question because the script is never finished. Right. (laughs) I shouldn't have asked it that way. (laughs) No, it's a great question because it's just like, as Steve will tell you, you know, even in editing, we're cutting things and so forth. You know, I finished the draft of the script that I presented to John Schimmel back in, I think, 2012. And then we went to Peter Samuelson, and Peter asked us to do some more redrafts, for me to do redrafts. Then, of course, we get to a director, and he doesn't like some scenes. And and even on set, you know, there were times that Matthew Modine called me out onto the set and said, you know, this line isn't working for me. Can we rewrite this and so forth? So I would say I initially finished the script about 2012, the first draft anyway. The reason I'm asking that question is that there are a lot of very talented people out there who are trying to get their projects made. And the journey of this film, I believe, is a great example of something that took a while. But because you were just persevering on it and everybody involved with it so committed to the project, it did take a while, but you finally were able to involve Gravitas. And now it got a lot of awards at film festivals prior to that. 
And uh, before we get into that, though, Steve, I want to ask, when did you become involved in this production? Can you explain your process with it so that our audience can sort of understand where both of you are coming from? Sure. Well, um, you know, we came to, uh, to become involved in this movie because he had been working with the director, Yusuf Dallara, on several other projects. You know, we had worked with him as early as 2012 on a, a movie called Philly Brown that was a darling at Sundance. Uh, that year. And then we worked with him again in 2016 on a movie called The Bounce Back. And, you know, we're a company that has a lot of experience with urban type productions, right? Working with African-American casts and stuff like that. Yusuf thought we would be the, you know, the perfect post house to work on this project. And it turned out to be great fun. And I think he was right. Looking at the film, it's it's uh, just beautifully finished. Talk to me for a moment about Yusuf and his vision for this film, and I guess we would start with you, Jay, because you probably were the first person to talk to him about what your vision was compared to his vision, and I'm sure that also involved Steve and everything you were doing. The interesting thing for me is it did feel like it was very cohesive. Production was just beautiful. It was well shot. Everything about it was well edited, well colored. But what was Yusuf's vision for the film, and did that dovetail with what you had in mind when you were writing it? You know, interesting that you use the word cohesive, because certainly in pre-production, as is with a lot of films, it wasn't cohesive. We had sort of different views or visions. You know, I think that at some point, we had to have a lot of conversations, and our visions seemed to meld. And I think something that was beautiful that Yusuf did was he really wanted to make a little bit of grittiness. And at some point, he mentioned the series Night Of. And when I sort of saw that series and I saw the grittiness of it, I thought, yeah, I agree with making it gritty. And, you know, there's a blue hue over the whole film that I think that the cinematographer and then, of course, Steve and his group there did a beautiful job in expressing. And it gives it a different flavor than your typical film. It's not this bright, shiny films. There's a little bit of cutting. There's a little bit of hard edges to it. Even in the scene with the fire, it's, it's almost like a little bit stronger because it's emphasizing. There's a little bit of artistic liberty there. They can speak to how they did it. But as we were going through the pre-production process, there certainly was a lot of conversations on what the look of the film would be. And I think that Yusuf and I eventually met together you know, our brains met together, so to speak, really in editing as well, because he first did a pass through. And then I went back with the editors, as Steve could tell you, and we did some more work on it. And then I brought it back to Yusuf. And then, and he said, well, how about a little bit more adjustment? And then finally, the last adjustment, he said, yeah, we're on the same page. It came together cohesively, to use that word. But there's always a lot of minds that are at work and in, in interplay of ideas. And I think the important thing is you finally reach that point where you're making, and I don't want to use the word compromise because you're not compromising the film, but you're letting the other artist like Yusuf, who's a brilliant artist, come to the table with his ideas and trying to understand it. And then you reach agreement and you uh, make a beautiful film. Yeah. Production's falling apart because of what they call creative differences. You know, I've been involved in some of those. Yeah. I think that it's a team effort, but while I was watching this, I really was thinking that everything that you were doing really paid off for the film. Steve, can you explain to us what your company did on the film? Absolutely. Well, we started by working on the dailies, so we processed all of the dailies, 
And that's where we got to know the DP, Ben Cuffrin, and we got to know the editor, Andrew Drazik, um, pretty well. We were interfacing with those folks pretty closely. And then after Jay sort of went back, you know, through the multiple iterations of editorial, we did all of the color correction and DI. We did the visual effects, and then we did the mastering and delivery, final delivery. Awesome. I have to say that Steve's work with the color, he really does a beautiful job. Their group really took a lot of time and effort and wanted to make sure that everything was right before they even released it. And I could tell you that there was time we were putting pressure on Steve and his group. Let's go. We got to get this done. We got to get this done. And he did not want to release anything until he thought his team had it perfect. Now I'm very thankful for that. Well, it is beautiful, Steve. You guys did an, an amazing job. Now, watching the actors, I'm sure that this film, as we approach the Oscars, is going to get even more attention. Um, Matthew Modine, Shane Paul McGee, Lex Scott David really stood out as well. And uh, Lou Gossett Jr., of course, there was there were so many wonderful actors in this. How did they work with Yusuf? Can you describe the process? I know you're not Yusuf, but you obviously were there and you were watching. What do you think Yusuf brought to the film that the actors appreciated? And what did the actors bring to the film that created such an emotional and very real performance? What I enjoyed about Yusuf's style is he would just very calmly say, okay, that looked really good. Let's do it again. And he sort of allowed the actors, because you're correct, Serena, we really had a lot of professionals. It wasn't like he had to take actors and adjust them a whole lot. He sort of allowed them creative liberty to try something different so that you had a lot of takes so that in editing, we can then choose between the takes. Of course, he picks his top editing choices. So I think that he worked very well with the actors in terms of allowing them the creative opportunity to express themselves in each take a little differently. And I thought that was a nice way of doing it. He wasn't somebody who was helicoptering over every actor in that sense. I, he knew what he wanted. And, and he worked very well with Ben Kufrin, who I also think is, well, I thought he was a brilliant cinematographer. In terms of his DP skills, he really brought it home. So they're a good team. They did a, a very nice job. In terms of the actors, they were a great group to work with. And I mean that in every sense. I've been on some other film sets and we all hear the reputation of some actors being snippy or, or difficult on set and so forth. I can say that none of them acted that way. They all believed in the cause. They didn't necessarily do, well, they didn't do it for the money. I could tell you that. They all believed, even if they took a little bit of a haircut in their normal fee, especially people like Lou Gossett and Matthew, they wanted to do this film because they believed that we need to improve the foster care world in America. We need to make an improvement when you have 40% of children who age out of the foster care system who wound up dead, homeless, or incarcerated within three years. That's a horrific statistic. And when they heard that and they learned about foster care in America, they said they wanted to be part of it and make a difference. In a film like this where it's very difficult when, well, I, I don't know if I want to use the word difficult. It's very challenging for actors who are dealing with subject matters that might affect them personally as well. I'm sure there were moments when the other actors probably went to Shane and helped him through the emotional, you know, the emotional implications of what he was bringing to this role. Were there times like that on the set? Yes, there was a couple of scenes where I remember being in tears. When Shane gave his performance where he's on the stand and he breaks down, 
after doing the rap, so to speak, Matthew really put his hand on him and uh, really just took a moment and quietly spoke to him, and we could all see that. Same with Yusuf. And then there was another point, because he had to do it again the next day, and he was drained. Shane was, I think, physically drained from you know, doing this. And he wanted me as well to talk to him about what personally goes on with some of the foster kids. And I told him one particular story of a child who was killed in foster care. And then he used that as motivation for a scene. And I think that Shane, well, all of the actors did a brilliant job, but Shane just knocked it out of the park in terms of bringing emotion to the scene. Yeah, and he's such a young man. He brought a real mature sensitivity to that role. I was I was very uh, surprised by that, pleasantly surprised. But one thing that you did in the script was you, you showed the dark side, but you also showed the positive side of people in that world who wanted to protect and to show love and respect for these children. Do you want to talk about really what you were trying to accomplish with the script? Yeah, what I did not want to do was portray everybody in the foster care system as evil or bad, because they're not. There's a lot of amazing foster care parents out there. In fact, I'm becoming one of them, and I don't think I'm evil or my partner, but where they truly want to take a child into the home, they want to give that child a new life, and they want to show love. So that's represented in the Randolphs, who took Jamal into their home, and he's an older child. As we know, older children have a very tough time getting placed. And they showed him love. And that represents probably the majority of foster parents. But I also wanted to juxtapose that position with how some of these companies, you know, in Florida and Kansas, for example, it's all privatized foster care. And then throughout, I think, 26 of the states in the United States, they allow for privatized foster care. It's a mix of private and public or non-for-profit. Some of the non-for-profits aren't very charitable, to use that word. And I wanted to show how some of these agencies are just not abiding by the standards, they're not abiding by DCFS regulations, and they're, they're hurting children. They're about profit. And really, they're the ones taking advantage of the Randolphs, too. The Randolphs didn't want Jamal to get hurt in their home, and hopefully that's conveyed in the film. And I think Again, Yusuf did a brilliant job in directing that part of it. The Randolphs really showed their emotion in discovering that Jamal had been abused in their own home in the scene where they burned their barn down. So I really think that I wanted to show there's a lot of good, but we need a lot of work in this system. There's another aspect to this, and Steve, I want to ask you also a question about the color grading in a moment, but there's one other thing. We don't have to cover this if you don't want to, but I found myself actually, even though it was very difficult to watch, I think there's an aspect to sexual abuse that is male on male that isn't spoken about enough in our society, and I don't want to get political, but I do believe that there is an aspect to this that is important for people to also feel empathy towards young men who may have gone through something like this. Do you want to comment on that? Thank you for asking that, Serena. I think it's a very good point, and it is something that we need to address more in the United States. I do think we address young women being abused, although we can even talk more about that, and I think that's important. But it doesn't take away from the fact that we need to also put a spotlight on abuse of young men. 
oftentimes young men and young boys don't want to talk about what happened to them because of this machismo type of thing that we're all taught as uh, men, unfortunately, although hopefully we're getting away from that, and because of what the ideal of being a man is. And hopefully this film explores that a little bit further, because in my career as an attorney, I continue to see young men who are being sexually exploited and abused in the foster care system. And I've seen it in the the church system. It's awful. And it damages men and women different ways. Young men oftentimes become more violent. And sexual abuse to a boy or a girl can actually create changes to their brain chemistry in fundamental ways. And it causes them lifelong damage. And I don't think we're addressing that. And I applaud the Me Too movement, and I wish it would even expand a little further to talk about the young men who are abused, because women are just now really coming out and talking about it, and I applaud that, and I think that's fantastic, and I hope we could continue that to allow young men a safe space to come out and talk about their abuse and not have fear of what they're perceived as if they do talk about that abuse. I think sometimes it's it's unfortunate that If a young man is sexually abused, somebody will assume or say he must be gay, which is not the case at all. Although gay men tend to be abused more simply because I think the predators see them as more vulnerable. But we need to have that conversation. We need to put that out there. And I'm really glad you asked that question. Well, it's a it's a very deep subject, and, and I agree with you, and I'm really glad that you showed it in a way, however, that was not exploitive, that only created an empathy for the young man and what was going on with him. Steve, I have a personal belief that everything that happens in production, post-production, is a dance that we all do together. And we talked about some of the aspects of what you did on this film. When you were watching the dailies, and you were talking to the production team. Can you talk to us about how you transformed the vision into reality with what you were doing in those offices? And was this in Canada or in L.A. that it was finished? We did all the posts in L.A. on this movie. Okay. So I'm picturing myself in your offices in L.A. And can you just explain to us how it all worked? When did you get the dailies and and what happened from that point on and how you helped the vision of the film? For example, the application of the color grading, what went into the decisions about the color and how you did it? I know I'm asking a very broad question, but if you could paint a picture for us, I'm sure the audience would really appreciate that. Sure. So the first thing that we did in pre-production was work with Ben and Yusuf to create LUTs for the show. We actually did a color pass on the dailies. We built LUTs for indoor LUTs at daytime, indoor LUTs at nighttime, uh, day and night as well. We did a first color pass on all the dailies. So when the movie went into editorial, a lot of the looks that you know everybody had in mind for the movie were already on the footage. So there's really kind of three main looks in this movie, and you kind of pointed out some of them already. It has a real coolness and a grittiness throughout most of it, whether you're in the jail scenes or whether you're in the courtroom scenes. You know, there's a real sort of moodiness to it that's quite dark and quite cool. But then there's the other side of the of the movie where there needs to be some warmth, right? When, you know, when they're in the, the Randolph's home and things like that, there's a real warmth to the movie that sort of wants to give you hope. And then there are the flashback scenes. And so the flashback scenes sort of have that 
that sort of blurriness um, to them, but they're kind of in the middle between the coolness and the warmth. If you think about how color needs to be used in a movie like this, reinforce the emotion. It's a very, very emotional movie. And just like audio cues are used to sort of lead the viewers into how they should feel in certain scenes, it's really important in this movie to use color to do the same thing. We spent an awful lot of time, especially on the, you know, the coolness of the indoor scenes. That courtroom appears to be quite dimly lit to give a real effect of having, you know, Lewis Gossett Jr. sitting up there on the bench and cameras almost always sort of pointing up to him, right, when you're seeing it. So there's a real drama in that. But at the same time, so you've got these African-American characters in a dimly lit room, and then you've got Matthew Modine and Evan Handler, whose skin tones are, couldn't be more opposite, right? And so you have to sort of match all those things and keep that coolness. And then the same thing holds true on the warmth, especially that scene outside the Randolph's home when the barn's burning. We spent a significant amount of time on that scene, both in color and in visual effects, to really bring the impact, because, you know, there's a lot of conflicting elements there, right? I mean, Jamal is pretty much exercising a lot of the demons from his past while that barn's burning. You want to feel that angst that he's feeling, but you also want to feel really hopeful that this is sort of turning the page for a new future for him. That's a real challenge, and, and so we spent a lot of time in color working on these kind of details to make sure that we could really reinforce the way that we wanted the audience to feel when they're watching these particular scenes. Well, I thought you did an amazing job. I was actually thinking about that when I was watching that particular scene about how you segued from one to the other, and there was a, a definite change in, in the approach to the color. Most people might not notice that, but I was watching, I was going, they did a really good job. It was wonderful. Jay, you said you and your husband are going to be adopting. That is so exciting. Yes. Yes, probably going to get in trouble from him because it's a little bit early. We haven't gotten there yet, but uh, he's a wonderful young man. He's 11 years old and very kind soul and a good kid. And we're just very excited. I have 20 of these cases in my office now, and I see all the awful things that happen in foster care, given my work as a lawyer. So it's nice now to be able to see the positive things that can happen when you take a child into your home. And it's not just a selfless act on your part. It's a selfish act because you're bringing love to yourself, that you're completing a family. And in my world, I never thought I would have a husband and I never thought I would have a family. And it brings me such amazing emotion and happiness. Well, I think it's all your hard work paying off after all these years, right? Well, that's <laughs> changes in the, the laws of our country. The Oberfeld decision certainly gave me rights that I never had before, equal to other human beings in our society. I think it's just a, a beautiful and incredible thing. And I think there's a lot of LGBTQ folks, I know I'm a little off topic, but who want to adopt and who want to bring a child into their home. And when you have half a million kids in the foster care system, you know, we have to allow good, wonderful parents even if it's two moms, two dads, or a single mom, single dad, if there's love and there's kindness and there's stability, let's allow those people to bring that child into their home. Well, I think it's something to celebrate. Love is love, and our hearts are all the same color. Years ago, I did a series of interviews with gay couples who were trying to adopt and couldn't. And so I don't know that we're off topic so much as we are talking about humanity in this film, and it was one of the things that I love the most about your script. The law is not about what's fair. You know that more than anyone. It's about who plays the game better than the other. And I think you also 
made the Matthew Modine character use his humanity in the end to change who he was as a person and to use the law for good. And I think there are a lot of lawyers out there who do that on a daily basis and who may not be appreciated as much as they should be. I thought that was another wonderful aspect of the script. I'd like to read the script, actually. Is the Writers Guild going to send me a copy when it comes time for the Oscars? Well, I can absolutely send you a copy myself, (laughs) so you don't have to wait for the Writers Guild. Serena, you brought out a really good point in terms of the script and humanity and all of that, because lawyers do try to correct the system and correct rights from wrongs, but too often times a big company or, you know, individuals with money can try to manipulate the system. And that's what has happened in the past in the foster care world, where some big foster care for-profit companies have managed to manipulate the laws in a way that they've taken advantage of it and they're maximizing profits rather than watching out for the best interests of the child. Steve, I want to ask you if you would mind if we did a part two to this interview and you can either stay on now or I can call you back. But I'd like to get more into the tech side of this. And so I'm thinking maybe I'd like to tell our audience that if it's okay with you, we're going to do a part two to this. So all of our geeks in the audience can really get into the details of how this film was shot and the workflow and as much as you can talk about that and then the post-production workflow and exactly what was happening. I want to ask you before we go about the journey that this film went through to find a distributor so we can help others in our audience perhaps know never give up that things don't happen overnight in our business and that if you're doing what you should be doing and you have a great product somehow it will find its way, which in terms of this film, uh, my understanding is you were going through the film festival journey and uh, how did Gravitas first see it and how long did it take from the time Shaquille O'Neal got involved and you started pitching the film to the time that Gravitas picked it up and now it's it really is on a roller coaster ride. I guess that's a question for you, Jay, possibly. That's putting on my producer hat. I can tell you that being a producer, I have a great deal of respect for now because it is almost harder than writing the darn thing. And the post-production and getting the distributor is hard work. There's a lot of distributors out there, and I'll just say that there's a few of them that are less than scrupulous. So we started the process, and again, I have to give some credit to my husband, Kurt Smith, because he wound up submitting to all sorts of film festivals. At first, we submitted to, I think, two top ones, Toronto International Film Festival and Sundance. We got rejected, and my heart was broken, and I thought, oh, is this it? And then Kurt said, well, look, there's thousands of film festivals. Let's submit to several more and see what we can do. And all of a sudden, we got into some very, very good film festivals, solid film festivals. And then we went to the film festivals, and we started winning awards, and we were especially well-received by the Black Film Festival, the Black International Black Film Festival in Tennessee, and then the Pan-African Film Festival in L.A. And then we wound up winning about, I think we're up to 15 awards for Best in Festival and Jamal's role, Best uh, Actor, and so forth. We won a lot of film festival awards, and it really was wonderful. But we weren't really getting calls yet from distributors. And then finally, we were on the way back from a really nice film festival in Arizona, and we had just won an award. We were feeling pretty good. And it was just a phone call I received, a cold call, really, from Gravitas. And they said, you know, we're really interested. We're very excited. 
And they really talked to me about the passion of the project. And I felt their passion and I felt their sincerity. And I felt like they really watched the film, which I didn't necessarily feel when I talked to some other distributors. And they made an offer and we, you know, went back and forth a little bit. We had a couple of other offers. But at the end of the day, I felt that Gravitas had the energy and, and passion for the project that we were looking for. And that's why we went with them. Well, I have to say, they got a hold of us, and they've been doing a great job. A lot of people ask me about distribution for their films, and I always warn them that there are two kinds of distributors. There are those who really want to find films that they believe in and can work for and can help promote. And then there are others who really make a living just telling you they're going to do a great job, and all they want to do is add to their library and then sell it in bulk. And so filmmakers who might be listening in, be very careful and get recommendations from other filmmakers before you sign on the dotted line with your distributor. So I do want to ask, you have been talking about the Oscars because obviously I love the film so much. Does it qualify for the Oscars? We submit it, and it qualifies. It met the theatrical release requirements, and it met all of the requirements. You know, the tough part always with an indie film, which was fairly low budget, is the bigger films have a whole campaign called For Your Consideration. And they could spend hundreds of thousands of dollars with billboards saying, please consider this film and directly send messages to the voters, at least broadly, advocating for their films. We can't do that. But, you know, there's plenty of little indies that have slipped through and and the folks that vote on the Oscars make choices. And hopefully they watch this film and it would just be a wonderful, amazing thing if we could get a nomination, even we'd be happy. I think that Shane Paul McGee, certainly his performance was riveting, and I think that he stands a great chance. But that's not to take away from Matthew or Luke Gossett, who are both brilliant actors, or even possibly cinematography, direction. Who knows what will happen? But we're just excited to have submitted. Well, the word of mouth on the film is really starting to pick up. I think people are talking about it. They are very pleasantly surprised. They love the film, and I do wish you all the best. Well, this is Serena Catani with OWC Radio. I've been speaking with Jay Paul Diratani and Steve Bannerman about their film Foster Boy. And I really encourage all of you to see it. Where can we go to buy or rent this film? It's available on iTunes, on demand. It's going to be in, on BET and BET Plus as well starting in February on a permanent basis, but it's also generally on your TV pay-per-view or paid. It's a couple bucks, and it's hopefully worth watching. (laughs) Well, I encourage all of you to watch the film, and we will be featuring part two of this interview with Steve Bannerman about all the tech behind this film. And Steve, do you know, do you guys use OWC products in your post-production house? We do. We used an OWC Thunder Bay raid for the dailies. That's awesome. Uh, That's good to hear. And I want to thank OWC for sponsoring our show because it allows me to talk to wonderful people like you. And this is Serena Catania. I'm signing off. And uh, remember what I tell you guys, get up off your chairs and go do something wonderful today. 